Welcome to the Lucky Let Cord Podcast, a Tennis Now production sponsored by Tennis Express. I'm your host, Chris Otto. Happy to be with you on Tuesday, April 2nd. And guess what, tennis fans? We have three months of the tennis season already in the books. Tennis's version of March Madness, Indian Wells, Miami, done and dusted and in the rearview mirror. They were both epic events. In fact, the whole first three months of the season has been pretty epic. There's a lot to talk about, and there's also a lot to look forward to because the clay court season beckons action already underway at Charleston, the Volvo car open on the green clay, and the scene will quickly shift to the red clay of Europe, Monte Carlo just about 12 days away for first ball there. So things are going to get really exciting in 2019. Joining the program today to talk about it is venerable Hall of Famer Steve Flink. Those of you who listen to the Lucky Let Court podcast know that we've been fortunate enough to have Steve Flink on several times before. Uh, It's always informative, always enlightening. He's going to talk a lot about Roger Federer, a topic that he has written about recently for Tennis.com. And we're also going to look ahead to the clay season because who isn't looking ahead to clay right now? I mean, this is the sweet spot of the tennis season where the summer slams and the road to Roland Garros are all in front of us. It's an exciting time. But yeah, we got to spend a little time looking back on what we saw at Indian Wells in Miami. Who could forget Bianca Andreescu and the breakout that she had winning Indian Wells, the youngest player to win that tournament since Serena Williams did it in 1999. She rises from 152 in the rankings to 23 today. An amazing push by an amazing talent. Ash Barty won in Miami, so we're seeing a lot of variety on the WTA Tour, and that's exciting. And over on the men's side, we've got teenagers coming out of the woodwork. Felix Auger-Aliassime has had a brilliant two months, starting with a month in South America on the clay, and then he has a breakout in Miami, becomes the youngest semifinalist in that tournament's history. He's number 33 in the world today, and that's from 109 at the start of the season. And let's not forget about Denis Shapovalov. He makes his top 20 debut yesterday, and he's one of just three players to have won or to have reached three or more Masters semifinals as a teenager this century. The kid deserves a lot of credit for what he's been doing. So, so much exciting stuff from Indian Wells, from Miami, from the first two months of the season to Roger Federer's title in Miami. There's a lot to talk about. We are gonna chat with Steve Flink right now to break it down. Thrilled to have Tennis Hall of Famer Steve Flink visiting the Lucky Let Court podcast today. It's always a pleasure to speak with you, Mr. Flink. How are you today? I'm good, Chris. Always, a, It's always a great pleasure for me to come on the show and exchange views with you about the game. Great, great fun. Yeah, and this is a good time to do it. Tennis's version of March Madness is in the books. Uh, pretty amazing four weeks in Indian Wells in Miami. I want to take it right off the top and discuss Roger Federer with you because I know you wrote at length about him after he reached the Indian Wells final, and I'm sure you have a lot of thoughts in your head about the performance of Roger Federer over the last two months, so why don't you take it away? Well, it's, it's been remarkable the, the way he's bounced back so emphatically after the, the surprise loss to Sispinus over at the Australian Open. And, you know, he wins Dubai, beats Sispinus in that final for his 100th title, nearly wins Indian Wells before losing a hard-fought three-setter to Dominic Team in the final, and then nearly got beaten in his opening match at Miami, but came all the right. way back from after that tough 
second-round match after the bye. He just was unstoppable. Good draw opened up, and he played beautifully. Frankly, Chris, I don't think he expected to play so well in Miami. I honestly don't. You know, he'd come off that tough loss in Indian Wells. It's a pretty quick turnaround. You get several days off, and you're right back at it again, uh, you know, traveling from the West Coast to Florida. And it's not easy. And last year it hadn't worked out well for him because he lost his first match in Miami after losing a close final to Del Potro. And he always knew that was a risk, but he put on quite a show. And then, of course, as you know, it was a little unfortunate with the final with John Isner, who started off kind of nervous and uneasy and not serving his best. And Feder was really reading even the biggest first serves. He seemed to be able to block them back and chip them back. He did a great job. But then after that, John obviously was injured. And it was unfortunate the second set was marred by that because you knew he was just buying time and that uh, you know, if somehow it, if he'd ever got, I, I don't even think he could have gotten it to three. If he had, it would have been, I don't know whether he would have had another set in him. So that was too bad for the fans. But a remarkable turnaround for Federer, and we'll see now what he can do with a little rest during the start of the clay court circuit and then come back later on. And as, as you know, when I wrote in that column on tennis.com, I am concerned about him playing on the clay again. You know, he hasn't played the French the last three years, and you know, he had played a couple of events leading up to the 16 French Open, but had problems with his knee, problems with his back. Didn't want to risk having those injuries. I'm not sure why that problem would not still exist now, but he's a top-of-the-line professional, as professional as they come, so he must know what he's doing. Right. And he is going to go back and play in, in play Madrid and then go on to the French again, and we'll see what he can do, uh, you know. 10 years after winning the title. Uh, it's, yeah, it's, uh, a lot of people, um, you know, are having th- deep thoughts about Federer getting on the clay. But before we get to that, and I definitely want to speak about Federer on the clay and pr- look into why he's made that decision. But but just in general, what does it say to you about Federer that he can still produce this elevated tennis at 37? I mean, after the six-month hiatus in 2016, when he returned to tennis in 2017, since then what he's done, winning three majors, now cracking 100 titles and looking so good. I mean, does it, has it surprised you? Have we underestimated Federer? Is that even possible? Well, uh, he, he surprises me over and over again. I mean, I never would make the mistake of writing him off. And, but each time you think, if you look at that span from he won the Australian at the start of last year and then you know, didn't play the French and had this loss to Anderson at Wimbledon from two sets to love up in the quarters and lost in the round of 16 to Millman at the Open, which was a shocking loss, even in the heat. And, uh, yeah, didn't finish the year that strong. Finished it okay, but lost to Zarev in the year-end championships. And then follows that by losing to Cispitus to Australia. At that point, you're thinking, okay, this looks like a, a decline. This looks like it might be uh, pretty tough for him to come out of it. And then to win two of his last three tournaments be in the finals of the other one in Indian Wells, I mean, that's more than than I would have envisioned. Now, does it necessarily transfer to the majors? I don't know. I just think it gives him an enormous boost, psychological boost, and uh, it, which will carry him uh, right on into Wimbledon for sure, no matter what he does on the clay. His confidence will be sky high. Yep. And speaking of confidence, you made a pretty confident statement on Twitter yesterday. Can I read parts of this back to you and, and, hear, and have you elaborate on it? Well, read it all back so I can make sure I don't have anything I want to take back. (laughs) You say the Connors men's record of 109 career titles will almost surely be broken by Federer, who took 101 today in Miami. He'll win at least three more tournaments this year. Yeah, I believe that. I believe that because I think that I don't see it happening on the clay. I'd be really surprised if he won uh, either Madrid or the French. But 
the couple of lead-up grass course against a Wimbledon, I think he's good for one of those grass course events. He's a, th- a major oh, threat yeah. at Wimbledon. Oh yeah. Then 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 you go to the summer, and you know who's to say he couldn't win a hard court tournament? Maybe maybe not. Threat again at the Open, and then you go back indoors in the fall. I can't imagine that out of all of that tennis that I just alluded to, that he's not good for three more, which would mean 104 by by the end of of 2019. Then I see him getting at least three or four titles next year, and then he'd really be closing in on it. But I I, I think he's going to need to play in that 2021 season, which is how I ended that tweet. I think that's where it happens. He's going to be a young 40, yeah. and I think that's what, when it'll happen. Because I believe that his, his, uh, he's so, uh, he, his level of enthusiasm is just not undiminished. It's, it's, just, it's startling to me that he still loves to compete as much as he does, and, and he never seems to get discouraged by a few of these stretchers like the one he had from Wimbledon last year through the Australian of this year. He just stays on task and insisted that he thought he was playing well in Australia. He didn't look at that as such a negative as many people did. He, I guess he felt like he just had missed his, all his breakpoint opportunities against Cispedes and that he should have won that match, and he still felt he was hitting the ball well. And if that's how he felt, he's been proven correct. Right, and, and that segues us perfectly into your article that you wrote. Despite some tough losses, Federer remains forefront in the game after Indian Wells. And you talk about the myriad tough losses that he has faced over the years. You gave a nice historical recount of some of his tougher losses, like losing to Rafa in the Wimbledon final, losing to Sanga at Wimbledon. And what you just mentioned is that he, he does have this thick skin about his losses. While most of us are panicking and calling it the end of his career, potentially, he just seems to bounce back and go on these runs. And if you think about it, he really could have won every match he played this year. Yeah, I, well, that's true. That's true because, you know, he won the first set against Cispedes and had 10, 12 break points in the match, just never converted. And then, obviously, he was very close against team before losing that in three in Indian Wells and went right down to the wire, broken at five all in the third. And, yes, he absolutely could have won that match and had chances to break in the third and serve it out. didn't happen, but he played himself in a position to win. But... Yes, there is that tendency. And by the way, I think that's going to make a difference going forward. You know, that's the kind of thing. It's, it's pretty hard to beat this guy badly if he's, if he's anywhere near the top of his game still. So these, he gets into a lot of tight matches against top players. Then the question becomes, is he, is he going to come through in the, in the clutch? He doesn't always. And I frankly think that's still, that is a recurring nerves problem. It's, 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 a, it's a hard thing to say because he wins so many big matches. But I think in some of these cases, I don't think it's physical. I think it's mental, largely mental. Mm-hmm. Okay, and let's move it on a little bit forward to the clay. And I think the, the one thing that everybody's worried about with regard to Roger returning to the clay, and make no mistake about it, it's very exciting. It'll be great to see him in uh, Madrid. Was he playing Rome also? And then, of course, Roland Garros. But is he going to be able to stay healthy? And do you think he'll make the right decisions about when to pull back or potentially even pull out of an event or two if things don't look great or if he doesn't feel right? Well, you just got to the central point. I'm sure that's his attitude, and I'm sure he's told his team that that's how he's going to approach this. If he gets into that, wins a match in Madrid, and the second match he feels a twinge in his back, something, something's not right, you're going to see him pull out. I'm certain of that because he does not want to jeopardize Wimbledon. And, and even if it meant that he couldn't play the French, I think he would do that. Same thing in Paris. If he does get to the French healthy and plays a few rounds and has an issue with the knee or the back and senses that it could be at all serious, I don't think he's going to play on. 
Uh, I think he's too wise for that now, and I think he's only playing it on that basis. Mm-hmm. But, you know, maybe maybe he'll be fortunate, get through both of those clay events healthy and do reasonably well, and then have himself maybe in a better position to do well in the grass with more matches leading up to it than he has had the last couple of years. That's that's the one thing I wanted to mention is that perhaps there are some positives. Perhaps he'll enjoy playing and just personally just enjoy playing on the clay and the experience of visiting those cities that he hasn't been to in a while. And then maybe there are some ways that it'll help his game in terms of patience and maybe in the longer rallies. So maybe in, in the end, it'll be a positive thing for him. It could be. I mean, I, it, I, I certainly think as long as he gets through it healthy, he'll be glad he did it. The, the risk is that you, you just don't know when. The, the weather, especially in Paris, Chris, is so unpredictable. And I mm-hmm. think like the year Novak won it, you know, you go back to 16 when he won it, every day was damp and rainy. It was really awful weather. Yeah. And you got to sometimes play through it. you got to sometimes play through the rain on the clay. That's kind of a unique thing about it. You're you're going to be yanked off the court at Wimbledon or the U.S. Open. Well, you've got the roofs there. So in center, you, you know, you're fine. But in some cases through the years, they've had to come on and off the court a lot. That's not going to happen as much in Paris in that, you know, if it's a light rain, you're going to keep playing. The balls get heavy, and that also becomes an issue. So he needs some good fortune, but I do think he'll be, he'll be, it'll be uh, really um, inspiring for him to be back on that stage again and to let those fans have a chance to watch him play again. Yep, definitely. And my last question on Roger um, is with regard to longevity, Looking back to what he's been able to do since 2017, where many had kind of written him off in terms of winning majors, now he's got three more major titles in the book. He's had a real great stretch since coming back from his injury in 2017. Um, how important would you say that longevity is in this this uh, theoretical GOAT debate that we are currently and will always be having? Uh, you mean on the greatest of all time? Yeah, I mean, in, in terms of this this little section of Federer's career, and the fact that he's done what he's done after 35, does that kind of set the bar high for, say, Novak and Rafa to continue doing big things as they get into their mid-30s? Yeah, I think it does. It does. I think it's going to depend partially how it ends here. But, you know, you, you said it. I mean, he got two and he got two majors in 17 and then one more last year at the start of the year, and we'll see what happens this year. And uh, he's going to have a couple of real cracks, obviously, especially Wimbledon in the Open. But there the demands are going to be that much greater, obviously, with best of five. It, it, I think the key, Chris, is going to be almost similar to what happened in best of three in Miami and that he really needs to, and he's very capable of it, take, really cast aside people that he thinks he can beat easily and not waste any energy out there, get those matches over with in straight sets as quickly as possible. Now, the draws are, it, he's at the mercy of the draws, and, and, and there's no getting around that. But the more efficient he is at getting through matches, that's going to be one of the keys. Cool. Uh, because the best of five, even with days off, it can be pretty tough to recover if he's having a, a, a bunch of hard four-set matches and occasional five-set matches just to get through the the first four rounds, let's say, and then he's still got three more to go. That's going to be a, a tall task, recovering physically. And he admitted that even here, after the four weeks in a row of playing tennis in Dubai, Indian Wells, Miami, you know, with obviously some periods off in there, but, but he'd been playing tennis every day in that period, it, that took its toll, and I think he was grateful to get off the court as fast as he did 
against Isner to finish it off in Miami. Yeah, but gosh, did he look good. Okay, let's move it forward, and let's talk about the other side of the age spectrum, the teenagers, and specifically the teenagers from Canada who just basically blew our minds over the last month. It started at Indian Wells with Bianca Andreescu, who won the title there, the youngest player to win it in 20 years. And then at Miami, we saw Denis Shapovalov and Felix Auger-Aliassime reach the semifinals. First time we had two teenagers reach the semifinals in Miami since Djokovic and Murray in 2007. What are your thoughts on the rise of these young Canadians? Well, I think it's 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 astounding because it was it wasn't that long ago that we were looking at we were hoping that Raonic was going to come to the forefront of the game. He's never quite uh, realized his potential in my mind, despite being in the finals of Wimbledon against Andy Murray a few years back. But uh, and then in turn we saw uh, Eugenie Bouchard looking like the 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 likely one to be, be at the top of the game, and that's now it's been five years since we've seen her at the top levels of the game when she time. reached the Wimbledon final and a couple of Grand Slam semifinals. So to have these three emerging right now, it's pretty exciting, and they're all pretty dynamic personalities too. Andrescu is she has some rough edges. I think they're that uh, she can be a little abrasive out there, and obviously had a little bit of a brush up with Kerber, she did. who she beat twice, and but. The bottom line with her is that her game is just astounding. I mean, to me, her technique is so good. And she's, she can blast you off the court up both sides, but she also has very good feel and a terrific serve. So I just don't see that this was no fluke what happened to her. And sure, she, had a, she finally had to pull out, you know, broke down physically in the round of 16 in Miami. But, boy, what a, what a wonderful run. And uh, I'm, I'm very encouraged about her. I think she's going to end this year most likely in the top 10 in the world. And then the two guys, the two, Dennis and Felix, are, I did think Shapovalov, I was a little disappointed in his performance against Federer in that I thought he got, he maybe was a little too much in awe of Roger, and it, he really didn't play a good first set. And yes. Federer did expose the weakness on his backhand side, and I think Dennis will, will work, make a concerted effort to shore up that backhand. But... Uh, it still was a great tournament. He's, you know, and now he's a top twenty player. And then Felix, I mean, it's just unbelievable. He had a great Indian Wells, and then to qualify for Miami and go to the semis and serve for both sets against Isner. And I just, I love his game too. His yep. serve is a little quirky. He, he, he has those issues. You want to be able to be sure you can spin that that serve in under pressure, like he was when he served the three doubles against John, serving for that first set. You could tell he was. He totally tightened up, and he and he he served. They all kind of went meekly into the net. That shouldn't happen. You should be able to spin, even if it's a relatively weak second serve. You should be able to get it in. And I'm sure he, again, he will work on that serve with great determination. But it, but I just love the prospects for him, and I do agree with the with the um, authorities in the game that are that are projecting that maybe his upside is larger than Dennis's, only slightly. But I'd say. In the long term, they're both going to be great, great players, and both of them are going to be contending for majors. Mm-hmm. And you have to think from a rankings perspective, OJ Eliassime might have a bit of an advantage because we saw what he can do on the clay last month, and he did pretty well becoming the youngest 500 finalist ever at Rio. So I think from a rankings perspective, he's going to be helped by the fact that he's really comfortable on the clay. Yeah, more so than Dennis. I agree with that. I agree with that. But uh, I do think Dennis will make up for it on the faster surfaces, and there's kind of a nice, healthy competition. They're, they're buddies, so. and yet they spur each other on, which is terrific. And I think that 
that was clearly the case in Miami as each of them moved through that draw into the penultimate round of the tournament. So I'm I'm very encouraged about both and and I think they both learned a lot from what happened to them, especially even not just the winning in Miami, but the way that they lost. Felix will realize, you know, he's got to serve out those sets and how he's going to go about doing it. And then Dennis will realize, you know, that it, it, it's you can't get too excited. In a way, I think he was maybe over-eager for the Federer match. Not cocky at all, but really excited about it to the point where I don't think he put his best tennis on display that night played a little better in the second set but still that was a big effort for him to reach the semis of Miami yeah and circling back to Andrescu I think that's a nice call of her potentially reaching the top 10 I mean not a lot of ranking points to uh, make up and she she clearly uh, likes the clay as well though we haven't seen much from her on it but speaking of top 10 we got a new member in there just this morning and that's Australia's Ashley Barty she stormed to the title in Miami at, and won her biggest title ever what are your thoughts on the rise of this young Aussie? Uh, I mean, I'm a big, a big admirer, big, big admirer of hers because she's so much fun to watch with the, the variety in her game. And she can do it all in the beautiful slice backhand, and she can absorb pace really well from the bigger hitters, as she showed against Pliskova in the final of Miami. I, I, I think she's the real deal, and I think she's a, a genuine threat to win Wimbledon the way, the way she plays the game. I, I'm excited about her, and it's been a... I don't think she's going to stop where she is. I think we're going to see her push on and make a big a bid for the top five. And I expect to see her right around five in the world by the end of the year. Yeah, and that backhand slice of hers, so many people talking about it. Um, does it remind you of anybody else's backhand slice? I heard, I thought about Steffi Graf, of course, because she had the, probably the best backhand slice ever, but I also heard Roberta Vinci. But in either way you look at it, it's a pretty effective shot. Yeah, I don't know whether hers is as biting as Steffi's was. Vinci did have a good one. I, I, Steffi's was a was a beauty, uh, but oh, it's yeah. it's it, it's it's very well. It's it technically it's very sound. She doesn't miss it much, and she knows when to use it and when not to. And uh, that's what I that's what I'm impressed by. The shot selection is very is is always there with her, and she thinks her way nicely through matches. And she gives these players so many different looks, and. Uh, I, I, I'm very encouraged about her prospects for the next couple of years. Yeah, I mean, only five foot five inches tall, but does such a good job of protecting her serve. Yeah, she does. She does. She's got a good serve, and she backs it up so well. And it's true. You think in this era, it's it's remarkable to think of all the women that are in that range of five nine to six two, at least five nine, five ten, and here she is at five five, standing up to these bigger hitters and taller women and more than holding her own. I thought that was a great effort. Plus, she's, she's in great shape. She, you know, Pliskova was the one that was feeling it in that final, and the second set stopped digging after a lot of balls. And, mm-hmm. and uh, Ash, Ash is, uh, she's right in there. She can play long three-setters with no problem. Yep. Speaking with Tennis Hall of Famer Steve Flink, and I'm always pleased to speak with you, Steve, and uh, I don't want to take up too much of your time today. I know you got plenty of work to get done, um, but I do want to ask you about one other topic, and that is Dominic Team. You called it his biggest hardcourt win ever, him taking the Indian Wells title a couple weeks ago. What are your thoughts on Team using this big title, not only to further him along in the hardcourt game, but also to use as a springboard confidence-wise as he heads to the clay? Yeah, you you put your finger on it, Chris. I mean, he did have a letdown in Miami and lost there early. That was too bad. But I think, in a way, he 
he was thinking exactly what you were uh, you were referencing, which is that he has the confidence now. That's not going di- to that's not going to stop. That, uh, you know what happened in Miami will be out of his mind quickly. And now he goes onto the clay, and we've seen the guy how great he can be at the French, and we saw what happened last year in the finals against Rafa, and you know he it was a great run in the previous couple of years, deep into the tournament as well. You know it, it, he's he's really priming and probably hoping that he can pull it off in at Roland Garros, and I think he's going to be one of the top three candidates right up there with Rafa and, no, and Novak to win that title. And uh, yes, that's what he's doing. He's priming for the clay court season. I think it's going to be important for him to do well along the way, as he has the last couple of years too, where he's beaten Rafa. You know, on the, he's had one win each of the last couple of years uh, on the European clay against Rafa, which has been important. Yeah. And even though he hasn't been able to handle Nadal at Roland Garros, it's it's still fueled him with confidence. And you know, it, he's beaten Novak on the clay, and he, he's he's going to be uh, very very dangerous because that's by far his best surface. That's where his core positioning does not get in his way as much as mm-hmm. it does on hard, where he can sometimes hang out a little too far behind the baseline, but. That's not an issue for him on clay, and I'm, I'm going to be watching him very closely from Monte Carlo on, and I'm expecting some some really extraordinary results from him. Yeah, the clay court season to me is the is really going to be the high point of the tennis season on the men's side, I think, with Novak jockeying for position. And we haven't even talked about him, and unfortunately we won't have a lot of time to get into it, but he struggled at Indian Wells in Miami, which I thought was a bit strange. Then, of course, you've got Rafa king of clay. You've got Roger returning. You've got team making a play who was a finalist at Roland Garros last year. I think a lot of intrigue in terms of the clay court season, which is now officially upon us. Yeah, Chris, just a quick note on Djokovic. He, I think it was Please. very understandable that he would lose early in Indian Wells. He hadn't played since the Australian. I was more surprised when he got a couple of matches under his belt in, in Miami didn't play great, but then he started off beautifully against Bautista Agud, who'd beaten him at the start of the season in on hard court, on hard courts also. Mm-hmm. And I felt for sure if he could have gotten through that match, he was playing so well and won the first set 6-1 and eventually lost in three, having, and they had a rain delay, and he lost the second set 7-5, very tight set. If he, if he wins that match 1-5 and 1-6, I really believe he would have won Miami. I, uh, it was one of those... I'm sure he's kind of aggravated about all the missed breakpoint opportunities he had in the second set. And so I, I, I think he's not worried about how he's hitting the ball right now. Cole Schreiber, he didn't play well against Cole Schreiber at Indian Wells, but he played much better deep into the bautista Goot match. And that just also is going to give him more time to gear up for Monte Carlo, and he's going to be that much more eager to start the clay court season very strong. Yeah, I think you're right. I don't think that... It's uh, it's easy to worry about someone when they you know when we're used to them winning titles at the Masters level and they don't come away with one in a full month of tennis. But I find it hard to believe that Novak's not going to be a force on the clay this spring. Oh no, I think he will. And the beauty of his game is that he really is he's the ultimate all-surface player. You could say that Federer is and Federer and Nadal are pretty accomplished in that way too. But I just feel like the way he his whole approach to the game and and the way he approaches match play and his ability to adapt to different surfaces that people don't realize just how great he is on clay because we're so hmm. we're so impressed uh, and and in awe of what Rafa has done but Novak is fully capable of winning a second french this year and I think that's that's in the forefront of his mind yep yeah exciting times steve it's such a great pleasure to speak with you it always is and i'm very grateful you took the time today um i want to plug you on twitter because i don't think enough people know about at 
S. Flinko. Always little kernels of tennis wisdom there. And uh, anything else you want to promote before we say goodbye, Steve? No, I appreciate you mentioning the Twitter. I'm still trying to come to terms with it, but I'm, I'm getting there, Chris. I'm, I'm moving into that world slowly but surely and, and actually enjoying the tweeting. But thank you very much for, for mentioning that, and thanks again for having me on today. Special thanks to Mr. Steve Flink for joining the program today. It is always awesome chatting with him. And be sure you follow him on Twitter, at S. Flinko, and keep up with his great work at Tennis.com. Now, let's get to the social tips. I want you guys to be aware of the fact that you can find us on Apple Podcasts, and we'd love it if you did. Just go into your app and type in Lucky Let Cord Podcast. You can also find us on Spotify or at our podcast homepage at Podomatic.com. You find us on social, on the web at Facebook.com slash Tennis Now, on Twitter at Tennis underscore Now. Hit us up on Instagram and hit the website www.TennisNow.com. Thank you all for listening, and we will be talking to you later in the week when we bring aboard Richard Pagliaro to talk about what it was like being at the Miami Open this year. Thanks, and talk to you next time.